Welcome to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive, featuring conversations with performing artists and industry influencers on what it takes to succeed in the arts. I am your host, Diane Foy, and I believe that you really can make a living from your creative talents. As a publicist, podcaster, and coach, my mission is to educate, motivate, and empower you to thrive with authenticity, creativity, and purpose. Hello, and welcome to episode number 21 of Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. Today's episode is an interview I did during Canadian Music Week with producer and songwriter Joe Solo. Joe was very generous with his time and shared some valuable advice for musicians, including some great info on music licensing and how to make it in the industry. And he told some great stories of some of the talent that he's worked with, including Macy Gray, of how he met her and developed her for 17 years before she hit it big with her debut album in 1999. Joe's other credits include Michael Jackson, Fergie, Will I Am, Quincy Jones, and many others. And now he's spending a lot of time coaching other artists through workshops and books and guest speaking. So I, I won't talk too much. I'll just get to it because we talked for over an hour and I hope you enjoy it. So what are some of the highlights of your career? Yeah, I'm glad you said some and not like your favorite because there's so many. I, I couldn't possibly, you know, yeah. decide. Um, but what's really neat about the music business is it's an adventure. And well, definitely the highlight is like the day I broke through from dancing on the fringes of the big time to being a complete rookie smack down in the middle of the big time. Right. I had been developing uh, from scratch Macy Gray for 17 years. and Before she broke. Right. Wow. And then when she broke, I got calls from like every major music publisher in the world, like all in one day, total Cinderella story yeah. kind of thing. And um, over the next, let's say, month and a half, kind of whittled down who I wanted to be with down to three, and a little bidding war started. This was all because the song I wrote with Macy called Sweet Baby was going to be the first single on our second record. And that was really nice um, because not not only breaking through and I signed a half a million dollar deal, a publishing deal, which sounds like a lot, but then if you take 17 years of work and divide it by all those hours, I don't know if I was doing better hourly than like a <laughs> McDonald's French fry cook after taxes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, but that's cool. I'll take it. Probably the coolest thing was the first time I heard my music on somebody else's radio. And what happened was I was, I live in Los Angeles. I was driving and my, my windows were down and this car pulls up next to me. It's convertible. That's it's a couple like the of, dream. Yeah, it's a couple of, you know, I'm much younger. And this is a couple of cute ladies <laughs> in the car and they're listening, they're listening, the song is blasting out of their stereo. And I'm like, hey ladies. And they look at me like I'm some crip and I'm like, hey, I wrote that. And they were like, really? And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that, that's a really highlight. You know, hearing your own music in a public forum is very, very satisfying. That's why I do what I do now, which is mentor people on both a large scale and a one-on-one -on -one basis on how to break through in music because I feel so blessed to have gotten the music dream I want that for others. Mm -hmm. There's so many common mistakes people make that can be avoided if they just knew about them. Right. So, and 17 years with Macy Gray, that's a good lesson that it doesn't happen overnight. It's a lot of work to get there. So yeah, maybe can you tell point. us a bit about the journey uh, from meeting her to when she broke and the type of works that you did with her? Yeah. And it wasn't just her. I was working with all kinds of artists. Mm -hmm. I serendipitously met her at this diner where she was a cashier and I was eating and I was paying my bill. 
And just out of nowhere, she says, hey, are you a musician or a guitarist or something? And I'm like, yeah, I play guitar, I produce. Um, a bunch of other instruments I play. I write songs. And she's like, well, I'm a singer, and I'm looking for someone to work with, so why don't we try working together? She's like, completely out of the blue. She hasn't heard you play. You could talk. No, no, <laughs> I was just paying my bill. And um, so I was like, sure, you know, why not? The next day, she comes over, and uh, she's like warming up in the vocal booth. And, of course, at this time, the vocal booth is a euphemism for bathroom, mm -hmm. you know. But I'm listening to her voice, and it's just becoming obvious to me this is a unique voice. And after about five minutes, I got in the talk back mic, and I'm like, could you come out here for a second? I want to talk with you. And she comes out, and I said, I will commit right now, no matter how long it takes and no matter what it takes, to be your producer and develop you and be your songwriting partner until we make it. Right. And I will never quit. And I will never quit on you. And it took 17 years. Yeah. Wow. Now, it doesn't always take that long now. But back then, I was just starting out, too. Yeah, you're and, learning you know, together. Learning so much, yeah. So I saw on your website you have quite a few credits. Could I maybe throw some names at you and you tell me a little story? Sure. Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones. A um, couple things. He has... He had this um, foundation called Five Million Kids, which is a foundation that brings in uh, well-known industry people to speak to high school students and inspire them to follow their dream and their path and, and not get into the drugs and the gangs and all this. This is all like in South Central L.A. type places. Mm -hmm. So I got involved with that, and uh, that's very satisfying. And then also got a publishing company, and um, I wrote a lot of music uh, for Quincy Jones Publishing, and um, those are the two areas where we worked. But what's really, what's really cool is, like, it's such a small, small, small industry. Right. Like, everyone knows everyone. Like, no matter where I go on the planet, I bump into somebody I know, right. you know, or my business partner, Matt, knows twice as many people as I do everywhere he goes no matter what country what city he's bumping into people just downstairs in the, in the yeah. within seconds of us meeting someone stopped him <laughs> we can't we can't walk through the hallways yeah. without like you know can't get to the other side of the room in time without you know meeting somebody that we met last year here mm -hmm. or 10 years ago somewhere else or whatever but it all kind of comes together which is why I always Try to inspire artists to just never ever quit because all these little seeds that you plant, that some of them start growing into flowers and trees later on in life, and it all comes together in a very nice way. I mean, that song Sweet Baby we wrote in 1994, it didn't come out till 2001. Right now, the night we wrote it, it only took a couple hours to write it. We were excited, we knew we had like a hit, and but it didn't actually become one for for you know another seven years. Yeah. yeah. So uh, be patient. Never yeah. quit. That's it. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard to when you are in those down times to not quit. Like if you're can't pay your rent and things like that, you need to have that passion that you're going to do it no matter what. And that's kind of what keeps you going. Yeah, and that doesn't mean you can't change direction. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the whole industry is is populated with people who started out as artists or in a band or something like that, and many discovered that for whatever reason it wasn't going to happen for them artistically, but maybe they still had so much passion for music that they went to law school and became a music attorney mm -hmm. or a publicist like yourself or um, you know, a publisher or a promoter, mm -hmm. concert promoter. A&R person, record label executive. This, That's usually this, a struggle no matter what there's, but there's you so choose many, in the industry. There's so many areas where you could be satisfied being part of the music business. It doesn't have to be Beyonce, Jay-Z level of success, superstar, you know. Right. That happens for the very the few. And it's the lottery. It's the lottery on top of the lottery, actually. Yeah. But... Uh, just to go first, full circle with your question from before, right? when I was talking about how like, it's such a small world. Mm -hmm. All right. So 
I was selected to be Michael Jackson's music director for the uh, 45th birthday extravaganza that he threw at the Neverland Ranch. Right. And there's all these celebrities there. And also, he invited all these kids from, like, you know, um, uh, orphanages and hospitals, all kinds of stuff. It was a really great event. Thousands of people there. And so it was really, it was really, you know, it was cool to be the live, I was the live stage music director for that. And it was really cool to work for Michael Jackson yeah. and to meet him and to come full circle and say, oh yeah, I've done some work with your producer, Quincy Jones. And that's, right. oh yeah, I love, I love Q. That's what everyone calls him, Q. Yeah. And um, so that small world thing happens a lot. And then that turns into other contacts and networking and networking is such a, vital part of being successful in this business uh, you know you could be the greatest artist in the world but if you don't know anyone and nobody knows you you're not going to get very far yeah yeah that would that would have been the next name i throw at you michael jackson well there it is i'm, um, I'm a fan i need to know what's the deal okay um, <laughs> um well here's so what the, was it like here's probably the best michael jackson story all right during that weekend you know he has a zoo on his property yeah and this is not just like with a couple of monkeys all right he's got tigers and lions and elephants and giraffes he's wow. got a serpentarium with snakes and scorpions and tarantulas and including north america's largest albino anaconda wow now he's also got some llamas so i'm talking to a bunch of people and uh in the zoo area right next to this fence and all of a sudden, I feel this slimy sensation wipe up the back of my neck. And I turn around, and Michael Jackson's llama had just licked me on the neck. Like his <laughs> head came over the fence, and he licked me on the neck. <laughs> now, that morning, if you had told me before the day is over, you're going to get licked on the neck by Michael Jackson's llama, I would have said there's a 0% chance of that <laughs> happening, and I would have been wrong. Yeah. <laughs> So you never know what each day brings, but it's, it really is an adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for that event, is that where maybe some of the art other artists that you worked with, like were there, I guess I assume there's a lot of performers for that event? There was a lot of performers and, and other celebrities too. Um, there was this performer, Ashanti. I don't know if you remember her yeah. or not. She, she, she was there. Um, and uh, oh, uh, Macaulay Cawkin was there. Uh I mean, all kinds of celebrities. Mike yeah. Tyson was there. I got, you know, I, I got to meet Mike Tyson. Uh, I don't know if you know who BT is. He's he's an EDM guy. He's like one of the original pioneers of electronic dance music. Uh, he was there, and creepy as this is, so was Michael Jackson's plastic surgeon. I met him, and I was kind of like, oh, so you're the one who's just destroyed his face taking all the money <laughs> right not not like telling him come on michael enough's enough yeah exactly <laughs> or maybe he did and michael said well i want it anyway i don't know yeah but uh, yeah yeah that's really cool here's an interesting michael jackson story i have nothing to do with this but it's a really inspirational story uh after thriller was recorded michael when he listened to the final mixes he thought it was awful and i mean he literally cried because they'd poured so much time and emotional investment into this record. And he thought, he thought it just didn't translate well. So Quincy says, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we go back in the studio and we're going to take each song one day per song and tweak the mixes or remixes or do what it takes to make that emotional conveyance happen. And they went in, they did exactly that. And that's the record that we all know. Mm -hmm. It never surprises me when I'm making a record how sometimes it's just the last couple final tweaks and moves that glue everything together. Yeah. You know? And the, the perfectionists, the geniuses, they always are very particular about oh, every God. little detail. I'm a... I'm a admitted tweakaholic but the thing is is that you know i may spend 100 125 hours on a single song that's average but 
those perfections that you create, once they're done, they last forever without any additional effort. Yeah. yeah so it's yeah. worth taking that extra time to really nail it, to making sure just every possible thing is undeniable. Yeah. And no when, weak links. When, zero. When do you know when to let go? Because perfectionists, we could tweak things forever. Well, yeah. You also, just as a professional, you have to also say, you know, um, you have to make decisions. That's the thing. And a lot of times, a lot of times you make a decision and just trust that the future decisions you'll make on the song, the music, the tweaking, the mastering, the mixing will work. And I, you get a, I got a real strong gut sense of that time. And usually, if I'm going too far with something, for some reason, my computer crashes. <laughs> and then like interrupt the process in my head and I'll be like, all right, you know. The computer I'm knows. not calling that like a sign from, from the other world, but it's more like an interruption of being stuck in that over-perfectionistic process. Right. And then also there's just time constraints in terms of budget. It costs a lot of money to work with me and can't go on forever, mm-hmm. you know, with us with a single budget, with a single number there. Yeah. So decisions have to be made, and that's part of being professionals. It's making decisions on what to let go, what to not use. Because a lot of times, artists like who are producing themselves will record every idea they can think of, and then in the mix, try and squeeze every idea into the mix. And you can't. It's just, it just becomes too much. Yeah. So you have to let go of some of your little babies. You've got to kill some of your babies to make room for the others to grow. That's a terrible analogy, but (laughs) I hope the point is made. Yeah, for sure. I also saw that you did some work with the shows like American Idol, So You Think You Could Dance, Dancing with Stars. What is it that you did there? I didn't work with them. These these are shows where music of mine was used on the show. Okay. Well, there it is. (laughs) That's all we need. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I've I've had, I think at last count, maybe somewhere around 2,600 placements around the globe. That was about a year ago, so there's probably a handful more now. And a lot of these placements are placed by my publisher, which is tentatively Sony. But they don't call and say, hey, we got a placement for you, because they work with so many songwriters that they can't spend their day all day long just calling and saying, we got a placement. The way you find out is you get your royalty statement six months or a year later, and then you find out, oh, oh, it looks like my music was on the dog whisperer. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, uh, American Idol. You know, just one of the, one of the um, songs that they were singing, you know, the song and so on and so forth. So a lot of times that's how I find out where the music was used, and especially internationally. Yeah, you can't keep up with it all for you. No, so um, every time, you know, there's a, there's a new show that my music's been featured on, I just, well, not every time, but it's recognizable, and I'll add it to the, to the list of credentials. Over time, your list starts looking like a crazy alphabet because you've got all these different channels with call letters and call signs, ABC, yeah. ABC, ABC, and then FOX, FTV, you know <laughs> Do you get into creating music specifically for a film or television? I I do. I do. One thing I'm doing right now is I've been composing a cinematic EDM library specifically for placement in film and TV. And the key thing there is that the whole point of the music, well, if it's for like a TV show, the whole point of the music is to keep the adrenaline high so somebody doesn't feel like changing the channel if they're watching on broadcast TV during the commercial. Right. That's the point. Uh, but for a more dramatic thing or film, the job of the music isn't to show off your music. It's to support the story and the director's vision of of, of the movie, for example, and to tell the audience how to feel in any particular scene. Yeah. 
So let's take, for example, like uh, you got a Batman movie and the Joker is killing all these people. And if you're playing like this dark, horrific, dissonant score, that's going to make you feel dark and feel like, you know, the evil of the Joker. But let's say you took the same theme where he's killing all these people and played circus. You would feel seriously. you would feel the joy and the folly of the Joker. So the music tells the audience how to feel in any particular scene. So it's important to look at it and serve the director's vision and the story's vision in that way, as opposed to I'm going to show off how great my music is. Right. And hopefully, hopefully it will be great within that context. And then also. You know, a lot of times people want to get a song placed in film or TV, which is, in my opinion, right now, like the best way to break through because you get upfront money, you get long-term royalties, and you get instant, hopefully, worldwide recognition if, it, if, if the TV show or the movie is a hit. Right. That can be one song, can make your career, and... If you do a TV show, like a theme, you get picked for a theme, and the show goes into syndication, like Seinfeld or something like yeah. that, you're set for life. And I, I know the composer of Seinfeld, Jonathan Wolf. He's a friend of mine. He, he retired at 43. Um, he makes so much money off the royalties of reruns yeah. that he, he got out of the game, basically, bought a mansion in in eastern United States, popped out four kids and is living his life and, and he still speaks uh, like I do and to give back. But one show made his, you know, financial security a real thing for the rest of his life. And of course, that show turned into other shows. He ended up doing a lot of different yeah. situation comedies and known as like the situation comedy composer. Right. So he ended up having a very good career. Or if you take a show like if you, uh, MASH, which the opening song is an instrumental version of a vocal song called Suicide is Painless. And MASH was made in like the late 70s or something, but it still runs all over the world on all these different territories and all these different Brazilian channels that we have. Mm -hmm. I don't know the writer's name, but I do know that the writer probably clears a good two, $300,000 a year in, in performance royalties. Yeah, and still. You know, making money for time passing. Yeah. So your songs, it's like owning stock in a company. If the company does well, you make money for time passing. It's the same thing. So as a music business person, it's important to think that way as well as be artistic. What I mean by that is, let's say you want to have what I call a universal appeal meaning appeal to a large, wide set of, of, of cultures and demographics, you might have to let go of certain things. For example, I had an, I had an artist who uh, wanted to be known as like great singer and great harmonica player. When he brought me his demos, like one of the songs had a 64-bar harmonica solo at the beginning of the song. I see you smiling. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, dude, no disrespect to your harmonica, but if you really wanna if you really wanna break through on a universal level, can we shorten that to like maybe two bars and then have a maybe like a eight or sixteen bar harmonica feature towards the end and let it be uh, a component of a great song as opposed to the thing you want to focus on. Because I doubt you'll ever get radio play no, with the 64 the bar harmonica solo at the beginning. Situations like that, sometimes the artist's ego will get in the way and say, no, that's how my music goes and that's how it's going to be. And sometimes they say, okay, well, that makes sense. Let's, let's try it that way. And there is, you know, no one knows for sure if that the original version of that song would have done better or not. But I think there's things that you can do 
Well, let me backtrack for a second. Being successful is a big component is luck. But there's so many things you could do to tilt luck to your favor, to maximize the chances of being successful. And that's why I'm out here talking to people and putting out products and speaking all over the planet and, and trying to help people get their music dream as best as I can. Yeah. So yeah. you spent a lot of time songwriting, producing. When did you kind of transition to really coaching artists? And the mentoring. And mentoring, like yeah. About seven years ago, my, kid, my kids, I got two girls, and it occurred to me that I'm spending so much time in the studio that I'm missing the experience of them growing up. So I wanted to reinvent myself. So I came up, and I've always wanted to be able to like help people. I just love helping people. I love making people laugh too. So I try and crack as many jokes as possible during my talks. Right. You know, have fun with it. I want to make good money. So I reinvented myself because of the you know hundred to hundred twenty five hours per song it takes in the studio. I was missing out on them growing up. So I wanted to come up with a business that I could give back, have fun, and make decent money for time passing. I started what's called the Music Success Workshop. You know, if you create a good product and you put it online and promote it properly, then people can check it out if they want it, buy it. And you don't have to like be right there, hands-on doing everything like when you're producing. I'm there mm -hmm. for every single second of the production not in every case sometimes i if the budget can't afford me i'll have a co-producer do part of the production and I'll, I'll do the beginning focus on the vocals in the end and focus on the final mix um but when i'm doing everything hands-on it's it's all consuming because i'm putting not just the time into it but every ounce of passion that i have yeah. you know the the songs of these artists, they become like my little stepchildren that I fall in love with. Yeah. And I live with it. And even, even when I'm not directly working on it, my brain still is. It's almost like impossible not to because you're in the studio and you're working on the same part and listening to the same little four-bar section over and over and over. And then uh, you're doing that all day. And then when after 12 hours of that, kind of hard to turn that song off in your head it keeps going and yeah you know it's going in your head while you're sleeping and your brain is working things out and the next day you, you wake up with new ideas and you work on those and it's all consuming, it's all consuming yeah. you know which is why if i'm gonna if i'm gonna work with somebody i mean yeah they have to have the budget but i have to like them too as a person yeah you have to spend a lot of time with them because <laughs> it's, it's such a emotional process everyone is sharing their soul these songs are born out of their life experiences and in some cases they need the song to be partially written maybe they have great verses and choruses but weren't able to come up with a bridge that is was as great as the other parts they wrote well you don't want to have an entire section be a weakling so maybe i'll write the bridge and we'll co-own the song at some level or maybe they are writing with me from scratch we split everything 50 50 and we're starting with just nothing and then we're yanking little musical ideas and lyrical ideas out of the ether and out of our brains and working on songs that's even more time and more consuming because now they're not little stepchildren of mine but we're actually making these babies together yeah. But the real magic is when I've got ideas, when the artist has ideas, and somehow those ideas get hybridized and make little baby ideas that are better than what either one of us alone would have come up with. And that's where like the magic of collaboration is. Right. So I really enjoy collaboration. So I want to enjoy the person who I'm going to be working with for so many hours and who I'm going to be putting so much of my own emotional investment into. And I think who you are, your character, is a big part of being successful. Yeah. Because it's all about relationships in the end. Exactly. Which means you've got to have a stellar reputation. 
you ask any any of my buddies who's been who's been in the business, you know, for 20, 30 years, you say, well, what do you got? Everyone says the same answer. All I got is my reputation. So have character. Don't lie. Don't BS. And the industry talks. Well, everyone knows everyone. Yeah. You know, so, so just just be real. Be it's authentic. A artist, you're gonna tell other people. Yeah. No, nobody wants to work with a nightmare. No, how no matter how great they are. Yeah. Because at a certain point, you know, life is short and it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but be cool. Be authentic. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So, what are some of the advice that you give to young artists starting out? Well, I may mention this earlier, but. Uh, the best piece of advice is just never quit, ever. Quitting is not an option. Change direction. Quitting is not an option. Now, if one day you discover that you're miserable, but you can't quit, I mean miserable for years at a time, okay, then maybe music's not your thing and you know, having a meaningful and happy life is more important than making it. Making it isn't the solution to all of life's problems. Once you make it, you just have a whole new set of problems, the problems of someone who's successful. Yeah. And everyone's got problems. But there will be ups and downs. There will be minor and major heartbreaks along the way. And if you just simply stay with it and don't quit, eventually something breaks. Opportunity that you didn't see coming at you falls in your lap. You know, um, I got a I got a buddy. He's playing with Corn, uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch of other bands, but he also composes this really cool video game music. He's really good at it, really high adrenaline. And uh, I guess someone at Electronic Arts, the number one video game company in the world, heard his music and called him and said, you know, "We want you to do a whole library of music for us." And then that ended up becoming successful and became his thing. Now, when he set out to be a rock star guitar player, you know, the idea of being this top composer of video music was not in his vision. But that's where the success for him started to go. Right. So we went with it. And that comes up. Why not? Right. Not? So that's not giving up, but yeah. But Change direction. Exactly. Be, look, be on the lookout for opportunity that might be different from what your original vision is right. and you might want to go with it or at least test the waters i'm the same thing i started out as a guitar player and my vision was to be a very well-known and successful guitar player in a band and uh when i came out to la i was like 18 years old i had a year of college under me and i was like i'm gonna go for it in music to my parents I was like, I'm leaving school. I'm going for it. Every parent's dream. <laughs> well, in this case, um, my dad's father and, and his uh, 10 or 11 brothers and sisters were vaudeville performers, oh, wow. traveling vaudeville performers back in the day. So my dad was like, yeah, go for it. You know, keep the entertainment, the family entertainment going. What kind of things did they do in vaudeville? Everything, sing, dance, comedy. Because that's vaudeville. You do everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm sure a lot of kids today don't even know what vaudeville is, but it's basically just tra traveling entertainers going from city to city on tour doing these variety shows. And you had to be good. You had to kill every night, and every night was different, just like touring, you know, live. It's, yeah. Every show is different. But anyway, so I was very lucky to have parents that were behind me and when I moved out, when I moved out to LA, that's that's what I was going for was was just being, uh, you know, well known, successful guitar player, touring records, the whole thing. And the thing is, is that the band that I put together, we kind of sucked. Not technically, we were all very proficient, but the ingredients were not put together in a way that people could relate to. We had this singer who was very androgynous and sang in this super high falsetto, and I'm playing this sort of combination of old-school funk and big guitar, 
And then we had a pop drummer and, and the bassist who, you know, did the best he could. But we just never, we never went anywhere. Meanwhile, I'm developing Macy and we're getting lots of attention and I'm producing other artists in different styles and writing, writing, writing all the time with different people and in different styles. And as a songwriter and producer, I started, I started to, you know, make some decent money and get my name around. And at a certain point, I was like, okay, I need to decide. I'm not going to continue pounding the pavement on this band thing, which is going nowhere and costing me a ton of money. Yeah. Or can I be satisfied having a career as a songwriter and producer? I'm like, yeah, sure. I can be satisfied doing that. So I made the decision to stop the band thing and, and uh, go more in the direction that was already being successful. And it was like the most liberating moment. Just the most liberating moment. Right. Because I had to let go of my original vision and let it be something new. And that's hard sometimes. It takes it's some very, time to get there. It's very hard. But then yeah. once you make the decision, it's kind of free. Yeah. It's, it's an adventure. The funny thing is, as a, as a public speaker and I've been told thought leader in the music industry, uh, I'm starting to get a lot of followers and people on my email list and everything like that. Several, several, several thousand. I was thinking I could probably put out a record of my own music right now and do even better than before. Yeah, because you have an audience. Cause, right, because I have an audience now, even though it's <laughs> as a mentor and not, you know, and not as an artist. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that someday, but right now I'm still just focusing on helping as many people as I can break through. So, what are some of the products and services that you offer? Primary product, the best one I have. I find that. People can shave off years and years of trial and error if they just have someone from the inside show them the ropes, teach them the secret handshakes, crack the code of the music business, which is the name of my music book, my music success book, which will be coming out soon at fine bookstores everywhere. So this product is called Make It Big in a Box. And it's hundreds of video clips of me speaking where I'm rendering advice to artists of all stripes and types. Some of them are long-form videos where I'm speaking for an hour and a half, two, three hours. And some of them are little clips where in one minute you can get a piece of advice that, that could potentially shave years off your success and then there's hundreds of written tips too all drawn from my experience and my observation of the experience of others because you know when I started out I had a lot of buddies who moved out to LA and they were going for it and I could, and met a lot of people along the way and I could see who's been successful who is still pounding away at it but hasn't achieved any success but they're still doing the same thing and not making any changes and or the people who are starting to achieve some success and their story is building. You can look back and see, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look back and see what tends to be working for myself and for all these other people and what isn't working. Now, nobody can tell you exactly how to make it, but I can tell you many, many ways how to not make it. Yeah. And a lot of people have this idea of how the industry works without, this is where ego kind of comes in, without actually knowing whether their idea is as factual as how yeah. the industry really works or not. So I try and teach that. You know, people think if you go into the big time studio that you're going to make a record and they book eight hours and they plan to do five songs <laughs> and that's not that's not going to yield anything remotely useful other than the experience of realizing that it takes a lot longer than eight hours to do five songs. songs. You know, artists often take six months, a year, two, three years making a record. You know, when I tell people, hey, 100 to 125 hours per song, they're like, what? Just for like a four-minute song? I'm like, well, yeah. Think about a two-hour movie. You spend two years making it. By the time... 
everything is done, it's whittled down to a two-hour movie. But that's, you know, that is what it takes to make a movie. Same with, same with a record. And it's not that long for every style of music. You know, if you're doing a, a more raw hip-hop thing or EDM where a lot of it's programmed ahead of time, it's not going to take as long. But if you got a lot of live drums and live instruments and layers and a lot of experimentation with arrangement, it, it does take a long time. But anyway, back to make it big in a box. There's so much experience and observation that can help other people. I had to put it all into one package. If people want to find out you know, more about it or get it, they can go to joesolo.com, my website, and click on Make It Big in a Box. Right now, normally it's 2000 bucks. Right now we're selling it for about 995 And here's the cool thing. In addition to all that video and written information, it comes with a live one-on-one consultation with a music industry professional from my company or if they want to pay a, a, a little extra, I'll do their consultation with them directly. Right. You can do it by phone, Skype, or in person. So it doesn't matter where in the world you are. In person is the best. If you're in L.A., and we just come over to my place, and we sit down, and we talk. That one-on-one consultation is the chance for the artist to answer all, a lot of the questions or have their music analyzed and develop a roadmap of where to go from here, where to go from where they are. Right. That is included with the Make It Big in a Box package. And right now, since we're just releasing this, the first 25 people who order are going to get me as their consultant without having to pay the extra $700 cost for it. Right. Also, I know that musicians don't always have a 1000 bucks just lying around. so. You could do a payment plan. I don't charge extra for it. I don't think I do. Anyway, you can do a payment plan where you spread it out over 12 months. Yeah. So it ends up being like 79 bucks a month, which is like Starbucks money. Yeah. They, can, money. they can handle that. Yeah. You know, if you think you know all there is to know about the industry, you don't need any additional help or guidance or advice, then, you know, great. But if, if you want to get a lot of inside tips and direction and motivation and inspiration spend the 79 bucks a month and um you'll change your life forever a lot of resources probably that artists can keep going back to oh yeah like i said you go to joesolo.com and if you just want to test test the waters you get on my email list and i send out right away once you sign up it's free you get my music success video nugget series, which are like a series of these three-minute video nuggets. And also, you get written tips every week, a couple times a week, actually. And each one of these things, you could put, to, you know, you can start putting it to use on your career that very night. Yeah. You know, so instant change. But probably the best thing that comes with signing up to the email list is I've I've created a list of the nine music career killing mistakes and how to avoid them. Care to give us a couple now? Oh, you got to sign up to find out. (laughs) But uh, just to entice you, um, like for example, one of them is, and people don't understand this until they read it, is is having your music on iTunes. You go to joesolo.com and sign up and you can find out how that could be detrimental to your career and a handful of other things that will hopefully avoid making very common errors that up-and-coming artists make. And it's not their fault that they make these things. You know what you know. Yeah. You have to realize that there are things that you don't know that you need to know to be successful. And... They're the quirkiest things, too. For example, if you're trying to get your music in film and TV and you send your entire library of, say, 30 songs to some music supervisor thinking, okay, they're going to see how versatile I am and what my talent is, not realizing that 
that doesn't matter to a music supervisor because their job is to find appropriate music for the shows and films they're working on and for the specific scenes that need music. Yeah, you got to do your research when you're contacting you a music do your supervisor. Research. Exactly. Or they're just going to ignore your email. So if they're working on a, uh, on a space adventure and you're sending your hillbilly cowboy music, yeah, that's <laughs> you know, like a right the, guy for you. You're just, what, you're just wasting their, you're just telling them, I didn't do my research and these people are so busy and have so much responsibility and they don't, they don't have time to listen to your 30 songs. In fact, it bogs down their emails, especially if like you send the actual, yeah, don't send files <laughs> to, unless they request it. Never send files, always links unless they request something specific. And many of the music supervisors in Hollywood do have specific preferences and you've got to get to know that. So well, how do you get to know something as personal as that? Well, that's where networking comes into place. You got to go to the conferences and you got to do your research. You can go to places like the Guild of Music Supervisors website it has a lot of great information. Watch the shows that you want your music on. Yeah, make sure your music makes sense for that show. Although everyone will say, everyone, including myself, will think, well, there's so many different emotions in a show that they can use any kind of music. But if you look at if you look at TV shows, they really have sort of a certain style that fits within that show. And here's a real good piece of advice. Real good piece of advice. Industry people are extremely busy. Especially music supervisors, but extremely busy. So if you're gonna write them, first of all, never send out bulk email. That says hello, or dear industry person, or hi. I mean, I see that, and it's like next. I don't even bother reading it because I already know that they didn't take the time at all to research what I'm doing or what I'm all about. And the first thing you write, and write this verbatim: "Thank you for taking the time to read this." So before you get into who you are and how you think you can make their job easier and all kinds of things like that, which is also more complicated. You, know, you got to put the right bait on the hook to catch the fish. Right. And you only got to which, which, which is another thing I teach is how the various, the people in the various roles in the industry think because like a music attorney and a publisher and a publicist and our person, music supervisor, they all have different ways of thinking that are focused on what they do and what they need. So it's good to learn that, too, so you know how to approach these people. And then when you know how to approach these people, you have more confidence because you know what you're doing. And they sense that confidence, and that is a big factor in success, too, because they want to work with a professional. And a professional knows the business, knows how to network, how to talk, how to speak the language of the person they're talking to. I teach all this stuff, and it's all it's all in the make it big in a box package, which, by the way, is not an actual box. It's all online, and you get a password, and then you can access it whenever you want. You're here for Canadian Music Week. Yeah. Have you come up here a lot? I know you were here last year and this year. Last year was the first year they flew me out to speak, and I loved it. I was ignorant of how much... Toronto is, it's a major music center in the making. There is so much talent here, and there's so much support for artists here. The country supports artists with all kinds of yeah, grants. Factor grants. Factor grants. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really amazing. And the people are great. So when they asked me to speak again this year, I said yes. There's always like a really good energy. The other thing I do is a before and after section where I'll play a portion of this, the demo that an artist brought me to produce that, that they created or created with another producer or what have you. And then I'll play the broadcast quality finished master that's been not only technically tweaked to perfection, but more important has the emotional conveyance of the lyric and the spirit of the song and the artist. That's all part of being a broadcast quality master. Right. It's not just 
engineering and mixing and mastering. It goes all the way back to the initial performances that you capture. But anyway, so I'll play before and afters so people can hear the difference that a seasoned producer can make. And it doesn't just make a difference in how their song is perceived, how well it's perceived, which is significant, but then it also sets, when you have professional quality master, it says a lot of things about the artist. It says, I'm ready. It says, this is, this is my music. Like to, to a record company, it says, here's the record. It's already done. You don't have to finance it and guess what it's going to sound like and take that risk. Here it is. Let's do like a distribution deal or something like that. So having, having that finished master changes in the most positive way, the perception of you as a professional is a big difference. So I can say that. It doesn't mean anything to people. But to hear that makes all the difference. And, and I have some before and afters on my website as well. If you want to check that out, joesolo.com, so you can get a sense of what I'm talking about. Thanks for joining me. Any final words of wisdom? Gosh, yeah. Get the make it big in a box and get <laughs> thousands of final words of wisdom yes. at joesolo.com. But I'll give you a real one, too. Here's a good one. A lot of people struggle with, do I, do I do the music that's authentically in my heart and soul, or do I do the music that I think maximizes chances of success, because maybe that's the style of the moment. And the answer is, do your authentic you music. That's actually, from my perspective, that increases your chances of success more than copying the style of the moment. Because when you're authentic and when you're real, when that translates, it comes out of the speakers and touches the hearts of somebody and moves somebody. That's what inspires people. Yeah. That's what inspires people. And your job as an artist is to move them in some way, whether it's to entertain them to dance or to let them know, hey, there's, we all go through heartbreak and loss of various kinds or, and everything in between. So do the music that's in your soul, not what you think is the one that's quote-unquote likely to make it because it's the style of the moment. And by the way, by the time you make a record and do a marketing campaign, especially if you get signed with a label, it's going to be two years later, and that style of the moment will have changed anyway. (laughs) So just do your authentic music. This can be very liberating for anyone who's struggling with this, extremely liberating. So that's my final piece of advice. Wonderful. Thank you. My pleasure. It was so great talking to Joe. Wow, he has, he's a wealth of information. Definitely check out his website. And uh, now during CMW, I sent some artists to different panels and workshops to report back what they learned and how they'll incorporate it into their career. For Joe Solo, I have Canadian singer-songwriter Tamara Madeline. She attended Joe's Ask Me Anything panel, so I'll let her tell us what her takeaways were. For links and show notes, visit dianefoy.com slash 021. So one of the things that he talked about, which I re- resonated with me, was that you need to have a music business mentality and be professional and prepared. Because when you're ready, the business will come to you. You won't have to be knocking on doors. So you really want to position yourself to be ready. And that this industry, the music industry, is a small world. Everyone talks to everyone else. And you need to learn how to network. You need to know your core business so that you can identify the obstacles that you meet along the way and be prepared to confront them. So being proactive, seeing where opportunities come up, and then being ready to capitalize on them. He, he also talked about a lot of things that you shouldn't be doing. So things that you um, would be a detriment to your progress. And he gave a really great example of music supervisors. There's only a small group of them and they all talk. They all hang out one another with one another and they're quite competitive with each other because they're all trying to break the next best thing. So when an artist has uh, a catalog of songs and they just mass email a bunch of music supervisors, what they end up doing and, you know, in their mind and in their intention is they think, okay, I've covered all my bases. I've sent everything out to everyone I possibly know. Surely someone will think, 
one of my songs is great enough to feature in a film or commercial. But by not doing their due diligence and not understanding who they're sending their music to and tailoring their approach, they've actually done more damage to their chances of being heard because uh, a music supervisor will see this massive large file bogging down their inbox and just delete it. And then they'll share that experience maybe when they're golfing or hanging out with their buddies and they'll all say, yeah, <laughs> we saw that email come through and we, we too deleted it. So here you are thinking as an artist that you've done yourself, you know, some, some good and you've actually damaged your, your chances or blown your chances. So that, that goes back to being ready and knowing who your audience is. And then Joe talked about taking your time and working on your craft and uh, he gave the analogy of when he produces, he's averaging about 100, an hour, 100 hours of production time per song, you know, to evolve it to the point where it is studio and radio quality ready. So I feel like myself over the last four years, I've really done that without even knowing. I've always really put the music first and wanted to put first a quality product out and then figure out how to get it to market. But I couldn't do it until I had a good product. Joe talked about being authentic as an artist. And I think that that goes with, with just being an authentic person in general, but also in any business that you're in. If, if um, you're not authentic, that's going to come through in short order. Like if you're trying to sell yourself as being something you're not, as soon as you're pushed, put on the spot, you're either going to rise to that occasion and deliver, or you're going to be seen as someone who's not prepared and wasn't genuinely authentic in what they were trying to deliver. He talked about getting to know the music business, and that's where I think that I needed to work on it strengthening my weakness and knowing business language in the, in the music biz, such as what a copyright is and what a copyright um, does for you as a songwriter. Corporate licensing, um, I need to get to know a bit more about how to get into film and into potentially commercials and using my, my music in other avenues that I didn't think about earlier you know, just what a music supervisor does. I didn't realize there was a whole segment of professionals that do just that. Uh, he talked about when you are reaching out and you've made those connect connections and you're networking, that you're going to always want to be humble, polite, and not pushy. And he, he talked about experiences of his own where when he's doing a business deal or a networking with someone in the biz, they're spending 95% of the time, you know, just talking about life and their own experiences and um, general conversations about one another that have nothing to do with music. And then they're going to do about 5% of the time will be focused on business. But that's unlike, that's not unlike most things and most businesses where you, you want to, you want to spend time with your colleagues having fun and then you do a bit of work. But it's really the relationships that are being built that, that you know, open the doors and, and push, push things further. He talked about finance, financing a good product as well, which um, is really important. And it is expensive. It's, ex it's been expensive for me to put this record out because I want to do the songs justice and I want, I want them produced the way I hear them in my mind. So, you know, not cutting corners. And if that means getting a second job or allocating money from other things, other luxuries that you might have to forego in order to make your dream a reality, then that's what's going to take. And uh, taking your time to do that. So I didn't rush into this record because I knew that I wanted to hire good people um, and, and collaborate with really great musicians. So I waited until I could afford it. And that's when I brought them in. And then he, um, you know, he talked about once you've got a great product, how do you get it out? Well, email databases is really important, is to build a fan base slowly over time. And he even talked about doing it with a, th a chunk of a thousand fans at a time, which when you break it down to those smaller segments of, of numbers, it doesn't feel so daunting and overwhelming as an artist. Because I think, how am I going to appeal to all these massive people? Well, I don't. I need to just do what I do slowly, methodically, and then build my fan base a small chunk of of people at a time. And as I'm doing that and I'm engaging, I'm going to get to know my fans better. I'm going to get to know what their needs, their wants, and their likes are. And, and I think that the music will just follow suit. He talked about also offering music-related products and services. So I need to expand my creativity and looking outside of the box as well. So now that the album is getting close to conclusion and I know that I'm going to be printing CDs and also some vinyl, what else can I offer? 
I need to start getting creative about how to use my website and how to use my streaming services to find a niche product that represents me as the brand, but also um, gives my fans what they want. And I think that that's going to take time to develop so that it's unique to me. And I am going to take my time to get it right. I'm not in a rush on, on that front. I really want to get that part right. He talked about when you hit a wall in your creative process, you should look at potentially writing in different ways. So maybe take a song apart of how you had originally written it and maybe utilize the verses as the chorus or write a new song around a bridge, which is very, very cool because sometimes we do get into writer's block or we tend to uh, use the same formula over and over and over again. So the, st- the songwriting starts to become a little bit redundant. And I know that now that I've wrapped up this record, and it certainly has a signature Americana, Americana roots rock sound, for the follow-up record, I think that I need to get a little bit more adventurous and creative. So I'm going to definitely take those tips that Joe provided in the workshop when I sit down to, you know, start crafting the next album and maybe pulling segments of a verse apart or a bridge and rewriting it completely differently to see what I come up with. He said something really interesting about when you have completed your work and you want to see, you know, you take it to market and you sort of test it to see, is it any good? Because you think it's good because you've been working so hard uh, at producing it. But what do, what, do, what do your fans think or what do your friends think that are like-minded in that type of music genre? And he said, a trick to do is to sneak, be sneaky and just play it at a party without anyone knowing that it's you. And he said, if your song is good, no one will say anything. But if it's not good, they'll ask you to take it off within, or someone will start complaining about or stating, what is this crap <laughs> within about 30 seconds? So I'm going to try that. <laughs> See what I come up with, which is unsolicited feedback, which is like gold, right? And I'm a little fearful of doing it, but at the same time, I think it's important to do because then you're going to get honest feedback on what people think. Joe talked about self-doubt, and I think we all have that in general. Certainly artists do. I know I've, I've suffered with it. it. It kept me from putting out new music for a very, very long time. And I've worked really hard at getting over that. When I do have a moment where I'm thinking negatively, even Joe addressed it. He said, I've had self-doubt myself. All successful artists do. And, you know, we start out in this business not knowing anything. And we are literally finding our own path, pathway to market, which will be different from every other artist. So he said, when those moments of self-doubt come, allow yourself to ponder on it for about 90 seconds. That's about it. That's what you need to grow from it. But then be prepared to answer back with something that's positive, that reinforces the opposite. And that's going to build your strength and your character. Like, hey, that's my coaching. (laughs) It is your coaching. And in fact, I wanted to bring it back around to your coaching because we worked on that very exercise, having an an actual statement that was uh, self-destructive, but having an immediate response to that, that was the opposite. And in doing so, I'm prepared now with actual narratives in my mind that I've pondered on. And when those moments of self-doubt come, I'm, I'm ready to walk myself off the ledge, as it were, and reinforce that, nope, I'm on the right path, and I'm setting myself up for success. I thought that that was really great that he uh, you know, brought that up because he's extremely successful, and yet here is a person that has you know, climbed the mountain, as it were, in the music industry and worked with the greatest artists there are, and yet he still succumbs to that sometimes. Yeah, we all do. It's human nature. It is, yeah. But he said, learn the ropes, because that's the most important thing that's going to serve you. Learn the music ropes, um, not just musically, artistically, but of the music industry as well. And then never quit. No matter how hard it gets, never quit. And that's really where I'm at. Um, Now I've started this. It's four years in, and I don't know what this album will do for me as an artist, and what level of success I will have commercially with this record. But I can tell you that everything that I've accomplished, even to the point of even being uh, invited to be on this podcast with you, Diane, those are all successes for me. And whatever this album was meant to do, it's already done for me. And then some. 
So um, I'm completely blessed every day that I get to work with amazing collaborators, such talented people. And I, I'm just so excited about the future. And I really want to take advantage of every opportunity that comes. Thanks for listening to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. Be sure to join the mailing list at dianefoy.com to gain access to exclusive bonus content, a weekly newsletter, and an invitation to our private Facebook group of purpose-driven performing artists and industry influencers. 